Amen. Amen. Good morning. So often I like to start with a question, and the question I want to start with this morning is, do you ever think about how much we depend on our eyes? And our eyes are amazing creations. They, they so perfectly and intricately work that we take in millions upon millions of, of bits of information all day long. We are perceiving things. We are processing things. We are bringing in colors and shapes and sizes and distinguishing people and, and places. We don't think about it, but we depend so much on our eyes in addition to our other senses, but especially our eyes. Because this is the way when, you know, all puns intended and play on words here, but all the way we see the world. It's an amazing gift from God, and, and have you ever sat back when you look at something, think how amazing it is. So for instance, I was sitting in my backyard the other day, and if you've been around this week, it's been like, this is why we're in Florida for the winter, amen? Because it's just beautiful weather, clear blue skies, and so sitting in the backyard looking at the, the trees, the bright blue sky, a little bit of clouds, and Shri and I are sitting outside talking, and then we see two bald eagles kind of circling over, over the house. And just think about how amazing it is. Like, you almost can't grasp how beautiful that is. God's creation all, all brought together, and, you, and your, your eyes bring it in, and it's almost sensory overload just from sight. And it's such an amazing and, and, and beautiful thing. And it's all an amazing gift from God. This is amazing in itself, but there's something even more amazing than that. There is also a spiritual sight that is a far different exercise. So spiritual sight is processing and interpreting information as well, but they are eternal truths. And they are discerned by faith. And just like a child needs to learn how to see and discern and figure out depth and things like that, the Christian has to do the same thing. There is a spiritual sight that is given to us by God, but is also an exercise that must be developed. We must learn how to de determine eternal truths from temporary ones. The things of God versus the things of man. And this is a God-given insight that, that takes diligence. Hence, the outline. Um, if you read the outline, we're going to kind of see the, the, the process of this. It's about the bread. Ah, it's not really about the bread. No, it's really not about the bread. But the disciples are so similar to us, as we've seen so often in Mark, that they are consumed with what they can see and touch and feel and smell, and Jesus challenges that. He challenges them spiritually every step of the way. And so that's why this is part one of two, because this is the, the theme of the, the latter half of this chapter. Last week we saw that the Pharisees demand to see signs. Jesus, in our passage this morning, is going to challenge the disciples because they don't see. And then he's going to take this man who has no sight, give him partial sight and then full sight. And next week, Peter will see Christ rightly. And then the week after, he will promise that they will see the kingdom of God in full, in their lifetime. This is what we're doing, and we've seen so often in Mark, is that Mark doesn't include all the details of Matthew and Luke, but what he includes is intentional. And Mark is very thematic in his approach, and so often he uses details to illustrate other accounts. And so that's where we are this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 8. And I'm going to read verses 14 through 26. 
Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes to see and having ears, do you not hear? Excuse me, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And he said to them, seven. And then he said to them, do you not yet understand? Let's pray. Lord, how humbling it is when we read your word. We realize how much we do not understand. You are a God of infinite knowledge and wisdom. Who could be your counselor? Who could seek your depths? Who could even begin to understand and know you? Yet you gave your people eyes to see and ears to hear and softened hearts that we might know you and we might grow in you. Lord, this is my prayer for our body, for your church universal, that in every time, but especially in our time, that you give us spiritual discernment, eyes to see clearly, ears to hear your voice and distinguish it from the false teachers, that you would give us hearts that are trained toward your word and toward your will, that we would surrender our selfish wickedness that you might be glorified. Lord, I pray that your spirit would give us understanding, help us to apply this word to our lives. We might not just be hearers, but doers also, that you would be glorified in our lives and that everywhere we go, people would see the light of Jesus Christ and ask us for the hope that lies within us and that we would be bold. You would give us words to speak, but not for our glory, not for our will, but for your will and your glory forevermore. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start by a detail of the disciples being the disciples. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread. Of course they did. This is now the second of Jesus' amazing large-scale miracles. And they forget bread. Now, granted, remember as we saw in the journey back and forth across the Sea of, of Galilee, they were on the east side, they were in the wilderness, they go back over, the Pharisees meet them at the shore, ready to fight, ready to argue. Okay, we'll give them a little slack for being a little distracted. But it should beg the question, how crazy is it that this just happened? They don't even stay for a night. They go, the Pharisees confront them, and they go back. Not only did this just happen, they had leftovers. And they forgot to bring the leftovers with them. This is what we're encountering. So you kind of get this this flighty, fly-by-the-seat-of-the-pants picture of of the disciples, which is probably accurate. And as soon as my mind goes to criticize them, I'm like, all right, hold on, am I any better? 
Because how many times have I put something by the door with a note on it, with my keys next to it, that morning, and then forget it on the way out that afternoon? Anyone else? I'm just the only one? Or how many times, not anymore, the Lord has calmed me down, but have I gotten a uh, warning for, for speeding, a lot of pre-Christ foolishness, and how long did that last? I drove really slow with hands 10 and 2 on the way home, but then the next day I probably went back to doing the same thing. So it's, it's par for the course. The disciples are showing us ourselves in this, this text, because it's easy to be hard on them, but we must keep it in perspective, and so Right out of the gate, I want to give you some application. The disciples just saw Jesus do this miracle on the other side of the lake. And they forgot the bread. But I talked to many of you during the week, and I want to challenge you. How many Sundays are you in the body? And you hear the word preached. And you pray with the saints. And you hear his praises sing, sung. How long is it before you forget your spiritual bread? How long is it before you forget all the things that you were praising God for the day before or two days before? I love Jonathan's analogy of the, the, the uh, importance of Wednesday night Bible study. Because it's just about the time we start forgetting the stuff we learned on Sunday. It's, it's this, this you know, curve in the middle of the week that has to bring us back with the body where we, we come and, and study together and learn together. We are the disciples. Don't be so hard on them. Because most of us would probably do not much different. And we don't do much different. So this is a great reminder to us that we must be sober-minded with the things of God and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And not take for granted that Jesus is always going to fix it. He will. But there are many hard lessons learned. We don't take His instruction. We don't bring the bread of life with us, when we don't apply everything that He has given us from His Word. And so knowing not just their stomachs, but their hearts, this is how Jesus responds. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf for them in the boat, and He cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now the first thing here, watch out, beware, these are continuous commands. Keep watching out. Continually beware. This is not just something you have to do once. He knows how uh, immature they are. He knows how impressionable they are. Stand guard always. The leaven of the Pharisees. Now what is leaven? Yeast. Uh, Just another bread reference. Well, the disciples think so. We're going to see that in the next verse. But when they bring up bread, Jesus brings up a very profound analogy. And what is it? Because I love how whenever they have a concern and a question, Jesus knows them better than they know themselves. And so before we get into what this, this leaven is, um, the parallel account in Matthew is really helpful here for context. So go a few pages back or to your left in Matthew, in uh, Matthew chapter 16. So Matthew records, and as they often do, they, they record the same account, with uh, comparative details, but also complementary details. Matthew 16, pick up in verse 5. Because if you were to just read Mark, it may be a little confusing, but Matthew helps bring this in. And and so I think this is where Matthew intentionally complements Mark. 
When the disciples reached the other side, this is Matthew 16, 5, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We'll get to that in a moment. And they began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So Jesus is talking about teaching here. Luke adds the, the detail in a different account that the, legi- that the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. And so these hypocrites, these people who say one thing and do another thing, their teaching is like yeast. That if you put a little bit in it, the entire loaf rises. It, in, it, is, it is cancerous. It spreads to everything that it touches. And Jesus' concern is that their hypocrisy, their teaching will spread to his young disciples. And so it's so amazing about this analogy is how often Jesus uses simple, everyday things. And they're so probing and challenging for us. Yeast and teaching have a lot of things in common. One, yeast and teaching both do their work outside of the sight of man. We cannot see them with the naked eye. You cannot see the effect of someone's teaching. You don't know what's actually going on in someone's mind, and you can't, you can't see the, the effect of yeast. You can't see yeast working with the naked eye. You can see the results of yeast, and you can see the results of teaching. But both are very potent and multiply quickly. And both transform whoever they touch. Now, many of, of, of you have had great teachers, and if you have, fantastic. Have you ever seen someone who's had a terrible teacher? They had that one just activist college professor or high school, or high school teacher who, at every chance they get, wants to make disciples of himself or herself. And you see how much that person changes by that teaching. We must be so careful on who we allow to teach us. Because whether we realize it or not, you continue to listen to the same messages over and over and over again, it will begin to seep in, and the yeast will begin to, to, to rise, and it will begin to spread. And so let's talk about the teachings of, in Mark, the Pharisees and Herod, and we'll talk about those two different things. First, the Pharisees, as we've seen many times in Mark, so we don't have to go too much into it, but these are the, the religious um, zealots, the legalistic authoritarians. They are consumed with their religious tradition. They are consumed with the traditions of man as we saw uh, last chapter. They are consumed with being the guardians of, of God's law in their eyes. They are putting themselves in front of Scripture very often. They hold their traditions high, as high or higher than Scripture, making themselves as prophets. We speak for God. In order to get to, to, to God, you must hear us first. And in a sense, creating their own religion. So these are the Pharisees. They're one party, one sect within Judaism at Jesus' time. But Mark says, and the leaven of Herod, or some of the manuscripts Herodians. 
but Matthew says Sadducees. So this is a conflict, right? This is a, a um, disagreement within the text. Or is it? Because, I don't know if you remember before, we spent some time here when we were in John, but just to recap, the Sadducees, they, their, their focus was not really religious, but it was political. They were the ones who held all the power. This was the, the, the party of the high priests. They're the ones who ran the synagogues. These are the ones that most of the, the scribes were Sadducees. So the Pharisees had the traditions of men. They uh, accepted the resurrection of the dead. So when, when Paul has as a debate, he appeals to the Pharisees because the, the Sadducees, they don't believe in anything spiritual. There is no resurrection of the dead. There's no life after death. Um, you just, they're almost annihilationists. You just kind of disappear after death. But they were very politically minded. And they were often aligned with Herod because they would rather be in Herod's good graces so that they could have political power at the time rather than being concerned with the things of God and the people of God. So both are true. The Sadducees were often so closely related to Herod that Mark can use the words, the leaven of Herod, or the Herodians, those who align them, Jews who align themselves with, with Herod, as the Sadducees. They are, they are one and the same. These are the two ruling political parties, and they did not like each other until it came to Jesus. Then they found their, their common enemy. And so this is what Jesus is, is warning about. These Herodians, or the Sadducees, these were the, the worldly, consumed with right now, um, political opportunists. Anytime they could stay in power or, or keep their power or wield what was going on in the Jewish culture, they, they would. So you have the, the legalists on one side, and then you have the secularists and the skeptics on the other side. Both exalting man, both trusting in man-made systems. It's a good thing we don't have to worry about those at all. We, we, we never have any religious leaders who are trusting in man at all. And so, thanks for one laugh, there was, that, was, that was fully sarcastic. And so here's where the application is for us. Uh, I don't think any of you are tempted to follow the Pharisees or the Sadducees. If you know any, let me know. I'd love to talk to them. But what we're seeing today in our culture is very similar, right? We're seeing political apologists, moral opportunists, people who would cater their, their teaching and soften their message that they might seem sensitive to the culture, that they might appeal to the world at, at large, that that they might make the, the skeptic feel comfortable because they don't stand for anything. Again, exalting man. It's, it's very different in the way it is applied, but it is no different in its influence. We have our own religious elite. And as we see kind of the, the unrest in our society, you kind of see two camps emerge. You've got the inclusive religious camp. It says we're just going to welcome everyone into a big tent, and we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to tone down the offensive language in the gospel, and we're going to prop up the things that the world is, uh, is digging into right now, the world loves right now. And then you've got others on the other side who are looking for political means, who are, who are, who are looking for the government or, or politicians to, to solve our, our problems. And is it a good thing? To apply the gospel to the culture? Absolutely. Should we be involved in the political processes? Absolutely. 
But if they become our, our primary focus, you know, how many people in this election cycle are known more for their, 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 their candidates than their faith? It's sad, but it's true. And so we have to be careful with that as, as well. That we don't get pulled into the things of the world and the things that exalt man. Because this, this yeast, it spreads like cancer. So Jesus says, watch out, beware. Always watch out. Always beware. Because I would argue that the, the tongues and the pens of false teachers have done way more damage in the church than the swords of persecutors ever have. And so Jesus is warning His disciples. And continues to warn his disciples, beware of who you listen to. Beware of who you allow to teach you. So here's kind of, uh, that's our first kind of sticking point. So he tells them to beware. And then it's clearly evident they are having two completely different conversations. So I gave you the whole backdrop of what Jesus is doing. And it just went way over their heads. Look at verse 16. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Yeah. They completely missed the point. I love that Cherie brought up to me. She's like, aren't they so dramatic here? They're, they're discussing the fact that they had no bread when in, when in fact they, they had one loaf. So it's like, the, the, isn't that us? Like, you've got one loaf. We've got no bread. This is hopeless. My life is over kind of a thing. Uh, like I say, the, 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 um, no offense to teenage girls, but the disciples always remind me of teenage girls in these, in these interactions. Just like they are so worried about surface things, they think Jesus is too. We are no different. How often are we so consumed with surface, surface things that I forget this, that I make this, this, this preparation? Like if Jesus needs our perfection, we're all in trouble. How many times have you beaten yourself up because you've, you, you've forgotten something or you haven't done this and you are so focused on this little temporal thing that you completely miss the heart of the issue? Every day, amen. And now, Jesus and his beautiful tact responds. Jesus, starting in verse 17, he's going to ask a series of seven questions. And he's going to, He's going to be digging into the completeness of their dullness. And Jesus, aware of this, Jesus always hears. He is aware of their conversation, but he's also aware of their problem. Jesus, aware of this, asks his first question. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? No bread? Really? I, I can just picture, I, like, how are you not frustrated at this point? Like, you can just picture just Jesus just, I don't know how Jesus responds to them much more graciously than I would. But just shaking his head, looking down, like, come on, really? No bread? Really? Are you still discussing this? After I told you about the leaven of the Pharisees? Do you not yet perceive or understand? He's being redundant here for emphasis. Don't you get it? Don't you see there's more going on? Don't you see that you're missing the point? Questions three and four are closely related. Question three has two within it. Same concept. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Oh, excuse me, I missed hearts hardened. Are your hearts hardened? So question three is one question. Question four is two. Has two things to it. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? So 
as I was studying this week, I noticed this theme throughout all of Scripture, this consistent theme of eyes, ears, and hearts being inextricably linked together. Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith, if you have faith, your eyes will be different. Your ears will be different. Your heart will be different. And these things are not unique. As I was reading this week, we see in all of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and several other places, Deuteronomy is a a big one as well, where God condemns them for their lack of sight, their lack of hearing, and their hardness of heart. I want to look at one of those, Jeremiah 5. This is a consistent problem, but I want to show you a practical example of how this leaven bears itself out. This is a longer passage, but I think the the details warrant it. Jeremiah 5, pick up in verse 20. Declare this in the house of Jacob. Proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Notice what Jesus is doing here. He is drawing on the prophets. He is speaking prophetically. Consistent with His Word, He gives the same challenge that God has been giving His people for centuries. Do you not fear Me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before Me? God does not have to, but He gives them a reason of why they should fear and tremble. I place the sand at the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this stubborn... This people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. Eyes, ears, heart, all tied together. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives us the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keep for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have kept good from you. Now here is where the leaven happens. You're going to see a spread, a cancer that goes throughout the entire nation. This is why they are going into exile. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait, waiting to catch them in a trap. They set a trap and they catch men. Like a cage full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. And they have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice. The cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. Look at this detail. The prophets prophesy falsely. These are Pharisees putting themselves in the place of God. And the priests rule at their discretion. Sadducees are the party of the high priests. And what's the detail here? My people love to have it so. This is the condemnation against Israel. But what will you do when the end comes? Jesus is coming in the line of all the other prophets from God. The, the final prophet, the final word, drawing the condemnation that has been on Israel for decades. 
We looked at this earlier in Mark, but I want to bring in Matthew 13 because it kind of brings us together. I want you to see the connection between eyes, ears, and hearts. Matthew 13. We covered this in chapter 4 when Jesus is dealing with the parable of the sower and why does he speak in parables. So I want to pick up in verse 11 of Matthew 13. Here he's quoting Isaiah 6. I was going to go to the Isaiah 6 passage, but Matthew's quoting it. Jesus gives its perspective to the time that he's in. And he answered them, To you, speaking to the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, eyes to see, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Notice what Jesus is, is, is doing. He is encouraging the disciples here, but he's challenging them in the boat. Don't be like the Pharisees. Follow along here. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. Eyes, ears, heart. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. Amen. There is a great blessing in Christ. Now I want to bring in one more passage to bring this to its fullness. So we saw the problem in Israel. We see the, the promise in Jesus to His disciples. Now we're going to see the perfection of it in 1 Corinthians 2. I'll be up on the screen because I want to get there quickly. But if you have your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6-9. through 9. Look what he says here. How do we understand what maturity is in Christ? What is the language of the mature Christian? 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom, think of spiritual sight here, of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understand this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. For as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. This is amazing. See what we have in Christ. The dividing line is here. The rulers of this age, they did not believe in the crucified Christ. But in the crucified Christ, your ears are new, your eyes are new, your hearts are new. They understand the depths of God. That is what's at stake here. This is why Jesus is so passionate. This is his desire for his disciples, and this should be our desire. To be mature in Christ. Eyes that are tuned to see his glory. Ears that hear him rightly. And hearts that submit to Him. These disciples are so worried about the surface things and their lack of bread. But as He always does, Jesus hears them. 
And he sees their heart, but he is concerned for their belief. He wants them to be mature. He knows his desire for them is, is for fullness in him, but they're not there yet. He deserved to throw them overboard and start again, but he didn't. Kept them in the boat and kept going. And then he continues the charge here. And do you not remember at the end of 18? Not only are they missing the simple significance that, of course, Jesus can provide with no bread, let alone one loaf. But are you missing the, the, the greater significance here? The greater work of the Father, the, the, the fullness of God's plan of redemption in Christ. And so, this is something that we all understand as well. How often have we been frustrated with ourselves that we don't understand, that we, that we forget? Or how often a love that Pastor Jesse prayed earlier about us being patient and not being arrogant with those who are younger in the faith or who are, who are immature in the faith. That, we, that these things are difficult things to understand. The disciples walk with Jesus and they still didn't get it. It's difficult to grasp and they are spiritually discerned. One of the greatest compliments I receive in this church is when people come up to me and they say, I love your preaching because it makes me want to study God's Word. It makes me want to know God more. It makes me want to, to dig in. That is my desire. Not to draw attention to myself, but for, your, for you to be confident in Christ. For you to know the mature things of God. For you to stand on the crucified Christ who is, who is risen, who intercedes for you who has made you sons of the King, who has given you all of His spiritual blessings. And I love those of you who have simple faith and who get that right away. And I love those of you who wrestle with those things and want to know them rightly and want to know them deeply. And this should be the pursuit for the rest of our lives. And the disciples are good reminders of that. But when you ask them here, do you remember Thankfully, he's going to send the Holy Spirit who will remind them and us. But do you remember what I was doing? Because you're still talking about bread, and it's really not about bread. Verse 19 and 20. We've spent a lot of time on the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. This is going to be a quick recap here. Let's see what we remember. All puns intended. I'm going to try to see how many times I can say see today. Let's see if you understand that, something's greater go- that something is greater going on. Do you remember... When I broke the loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they answered 12. We looked at this, the significance. What does 12 mean for the nation of Israel? Tribes. 12 tribes, which then turns to the 12 apostles. This means the completeness of Israel, but also the unity of Israel. That all of Israel would be provided for. All are fed and all are accounted for. Matthew and Mark both uh, keep a consistent detail, which is interesting. I br- mentioned it briefly last week. There are two words for baskets here. This first one is a smaller word for basket that an individual would take on a shorter journey. He gave them 12 baskets full of broken pieces, leftover bread, that each one of them could take on a shorter journey as if you were traveling around Galilee, you've had a, you'd have enough bread to go. The fullness of Israel, remember this happened in Galilee, on the other side of the lake, the feeding of the 4,000. 
And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they answered him, seven. We saw the significance of the word seven. That all cultures, not just Israel, saw this as a number of, of perfection, of completion, because it gave, us the entire, it gave them the entire lunar week. Every culture holds seven significantly. This was important because this was done in Gentile land, in the Decapolis, where people came from all of these different regions. And so there is even a perfection, a fullness of the pieces that would be gathered up. Not one would be lost. Not one crumb was lost, even from among the Gentiles. And there's also the, the word used for basket here, and I will give credit where credit's due. The NASB and the, the New King James preserve large basket. This is a larger basket. There were seven large baskets. These were ones that were taken on longer journeys and on boat voyages. As if you, you were going outside of Galilee, you would need this larger basket for longer supply, going outside of the, the, the Jewish regions. You see what Jesus is doing here? I am showing you what the kingdom of God is like. I'm multiplying these five loaves, and these seven little loaves, so that you can see, not only will I provide for those who are here, but I will provide abundantly more for all of Israel. For all the Gentiles, perfectly. And I will not lose one. Do you see what my Father's doing? I am doing something greater than just bread. And even if you miss all of that symbolism, don't you think I can feed you with one loaf of bread? Really? I'm showing you something amazing that your spiritual eyes should pop out of your head for. And you're still arguing over a loaf of bread. So naturally, he repeats one question again. Do you not yet understand? So Jesus asks, do you not yet understand? And I have to ask, do you? Do you understand God's plan of redemption? That he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That he will not lose one. The Father will draw to himself. The Son will accomplish and the Spirit will preserve. God's kingdom will not be shaken. God's kingdom will not be overturned. The Father's plan of redemption is, anything greater than, is greater than anything you can imagine. Do you understand? Do you understand that Jesus can and will provide? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Jesus who can multiply bread will take care of your needs. Not all you wants when you're greedy, but he knows what you need. He knows when you're hungry. He knows when you're hurting. Do you not know, do you not understand who we are talking about? But how often we forget, like the disciples, how often we forget what Christ has done. How often we forget God's plan of redemption that he has brought us into. You can't just be with Jesus in the boat. You can't just show up and go along. As we've seen in the disciples, it's not enough. You have to have eyes to see. You have to have ears to hear. You must be born again. This was Jesus' challenge when he talked to Nicodemus. You must be born again. And this is of a spiritual nature. Because unless you repent and believe by the Holy Spirit giving you a new heart, you will never see. You will never hear. You will never understand. 
This is what's at stake here. We are talking about spiritual sight. Seeing the things of God. Understanding the depths of God through Jesus Christ. Do you want that? And if you have that, do you pursue it? Do you pray for it? So I'm going to do something interesting in our last couple of minutes here. Uh, I'm going to split this narrative of the blind man in two. This is, a, this is unique, and it's the only uh, healing that Jesus does in two stages. Every other healing is instantaneous. So I want to just use this as our application. We'll spend more time in it next week. But this is an important bridge from this week to next. So we're actually going to, only going to look at part of it. What's interesting here is that Mark has his, his theme really strong. He uses seven different words for sight, not to mention eyes or blindness. So you think he's trying to drive home a point. You think he's trying to bring your attention to the spiritual blindness that we just looked at. So we're going to see a lot of familiar details in here. Jesus' desire for secrecy and use of saliva. Um, more on that next week. But I want to read this quickly. We're going to look at a couple things. But I'm going to stop at verse 24. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. First thing I want you to see in application, his guides bring them as far as they could. Again, we see many loving friends in the Gospel of Mark. His friends brought them to Jesus, and now Jesus takes them by the hand. So let me just encourage you and take some weight off your shoulders, those who you're, of you who are trying to save people. You can't open anyone's eyes. No one has ever opened their eyes on their own. It has not happened in the history of the universe, and it will not happen again. It won't happen ever. But only Jesus can open eyes. That is our job, to bring the blind, to bring the deaf, to bring the lame to Jesus and let Him touch them because it is always His transforming touch that brings sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, which we saw a couple weeks ago, new hearts to those who are dead. So they take Him. Jesus takes Him aside, spit in His eyes, and story for another day, and laid His hands on Him and he asked him, do you see anything? This is a very probing question. Do you see anything? I believe an in intentional detail by Mark. Sound like anything we've encountered so far? Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but. As the blind man describes his sight, I think he's describing something else as well. He gives a clue of the sight of the disciples. Because even after all they've seen and all they've heard from Jesus, they see, but there's still something lacking in their sight. They're still not making the connections. The disciples we see in Mark and the disciples we see preaching in Acts are two very different set of disciples. They're still blind to the fullness of, Christ, of what Christ is and what He's doing. The disciples are in a sense saying, I see, but they're proving there's a but here. I see something, and if they see it all, it's certainly not clearly. 
And this is where I want to stop because I think this is where we find ourselves with the disciples. I see, but they look like trees walking. And so for us, there's a difference between knowing about Christ and seeing some vague outline of his image and knowing him in fullness. Just as the disciples can be in the boat and understand, we can go to church and nod our heads or nod off week after week. And some of you are seeing Jesus as a tree walking. I think there's something over there. I see some shape, some blurry image, but I don't really know what it is. So I want to ask you this morning, as we think in these last couple moments, do you see Christ in His fullness? We're going to see a glimpse of that next week. Do you see the Son of Man in resurrected glory? Do you know Jesus as the Jesus that, that, that Stephen saw? Standing at the right hand of the Father in, in glory. Looking in love on His servant. Do you know Jesus as King? Prophet? Priest? Do you know Him as King of kings and Lord of lords? He has given this to us in His Word. Do you know Him as the God who took on flesh to die for my sins? Not just for the sins of those people over there, the person sitting next to me, but do you know Him as the one who came to die for your sins? Do you know Him as the one who took your sins on the cross? Do you know Him as the one who took the wrath of God meant for you on Him? Do you know Him as the one who gave you new eyes and a new heart and new ears? Do you understand There's so much to see and so much to miss. And it's my prayer that the Lord grants you that sight. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you calm our hearts and minds. So often we can be consumed with our shortcomings and our failings. They can cloud our judgment. But Lord, I ask that you give us eyes to see Christ clearly. That your people would fall before your throne of grace in relief because their sins have been forgiven. That they would stand boldly on their Savior because they live a new life in Him. That You would train our eyes to see, tune our ears to hear, soften our hearts, that we might be wholly complete in You. That we might be a people who discern the deep things of God. Because our God desires for us to know Him. Lord, thank You for Your Spirit who reminds us of the teaching of Christ. Who transforms our hearts and our speech. Makes us temples that we might draw before You and worship You rightly. How awesome you are. Give us understanding. Forgive us our dullness and hardness of hearts. 
Help us to be a people who fear you, who are not swayed by the teachings of men, who are not driven to and fro by every wind of doctrine and culture. We are citizens of an unshakable kingdom where no one will be lost. No one will ever see death that leads to separation from you. There is victory over death and there is eternal life in you. Lord, remind us of these things. I pray for your people as your servant, that we may be found faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.